chapter 5, James, the fifth chapter. We're going to look at the first six verses of James chapter 5 tonight. I'm going to read and want you to follow along with me. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sebaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. And let's pray. Lord, once again, we thank you and praise you for this blessed book. Thank you for this epistle of James, the things we've learned from it. Now there's more we need tonight. And we ask you to speak to us and minister to us from your word. Might we see these truths and these principles. Might we not just see them, but apply them to our hearts and our lives, that we might be better Christians. We know there's a growth process that we're to go through. And we never stop growing till we get to glory. And I just pray that you'd help us tonight to see some things that would help us to grow stronger, grow closer to you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I titled this, Woe to the Rich. Woe to the Rich. How often have you found yourself wishing you were rich? How often have we thought that being independently wealthy would end all of our problems and bring that elusive happiness that we desire. The fact is, for most of us, we're better off not being rich and wealthy. It may well be that God has withheld wealth from us because he knows it would ruin us in many ways. The Bible does not say it is a sin to be rich. However, the Bible has much to say about the dangers of being rich and being wealthy in the goods of this world. This text we've read is just such a warning. Here James takes to task the wealthy Jews of his day, all of it very negative. It can be a very difficult line to walk as both a wealthy person and a God-loving, God-honoring Christian. This evening we're going to see what James has to say about this subject of woe to the rich. Notice in verse 1 we see an impending doom. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl, for your misery shall come upon you. He's writing to the wealthy Jews. Now, there's a lot of controversy over, is he writing to the, just the saved Jews? Or is he writing to just the lost Jews? And uh, I came to the conclusion, I think he's writing to all uh, wealthy Jews, whether saved or lost. And then there's a warning of coming judgment to them. He says, your miseries that shall come upon you. That word miseries has the idea of hardships or suffering or distresses. Enjoying ease of life and wealth 
right now does not spell hope for the future. Uh, go over to Luke chapter 12 for a minute. Jesus taught a parable here dealing with this very idea that being wealthy now does not guarantee any kind of future. And uh, in Luke chapter 12, we'll begin with verse 16. The Bible says there, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things, those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So laying up treasures isn't a bad thing, but we need to understand it doesn't guarantee that we're going to have a future. We're, we're not guaranteed another breath. We're not guaranteed another minute of life. Life can be gone that fast. Auto accident, crime, who knows? Heart attack, that fast. And uh, we need to understand that. Wealth carries its own miseries. And he says there, Woe, or go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. You ever notice how rich people seem to be miserable? You say, well, I've never seen that. Well, let me just remind you about a couple of things. Elvis Presley was very, very wealthy. He ended up committing suicide, overdosing on drugs. Marilyn Monroe, years ago, was a very famous actress and, and uh, wealthy. She ended up committing suicide. Uh, I'm trying to think of some others that we're in the same boat. They're very wealthy with the world's goods. Uh, I read somewhere where Elvis Presley used to go and buy 12 Cadillacs at a time. And he would give them away. Now, that's some kind of wealthy. But he wasn't happy. We somehow think that wealth is going to buy happiness. No, wealth brings misery. And uh, there's a lot of misery. I was thinking about how many times have we heard about people who win the lottery, and their testimony is, it's the worst thing that ever happened to me. It ruins them, and uh, they have to put up with, with all the things that come with, with having riches. You know, the rich worry about their riches. Hmm? The rich have to lay awake, lay awake at night and wonder about their investments and their riches and that kind of thing. If you don't have that, you've been spared. You get to go to sleep instead of worrying. But there are miseries that come with wealth. Sometimes rich people are badgered by others wanting a handout. Sometimes it's just a matter of they become consumed with gaining more wealth. I read one time about one rich man asked, uh, was asked, 
How much is enough? He said, one more dollar. See, oftentimes that, that wealth makes you want more wealth, and uh, money becomes the, the sole source of, of your desires. The wealthy see themselves as self-sufficient. You know, the wealthy have this attitude, I don't need God because I'm doing okay without him. I've said many times, I would rather go soul winning in a ghetto neighborhood and a poor neighborhood than in a wealthy neighborhood. Now, I don't have anything against rich people. That's not why it's that way. But I have found through experience the people in the poor neighborhood are much more likely to be willing to talk to you and listen to what you have to say, et cetera, than the people in the rich neighborhood. See, because the people in the poor neighborhood, they know they're not doing very good. Hmm? The people in the rich neighborhood, you know, they think I'm doing pretty good without God. Why do I need him? Riches can bring miseries. The ungodly rich who make no preparation for hereafter will experience the miseries of an eternity in hell. And he says, uh, go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. You know, ultimately, uh, we know that story of the rich man and the beggar, how the rich man ended up in hell. Now, that don't mean all rich people are going to go to hell. But Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. That's what he said. And riches get in the way. Well, what's, what's it have to do with us? Well, we often wish to be wealthy, and we think wealth will eliminate our problems, but wealth carries its own miseries, and we need to understand that. So we see the impending doom, and then we see the wasting of wealth. Look at verses 2 and 3. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you. And shall eat your flesh as it were fire, yet heap treasure together for the last days. Well, he's talking here about the futileness of hoarding riches. Riches, when you try to hoard them, are corrupted. See, the thing is, God don't give us wealth to store it. God gives us wealth to use it. Now, most of us in here understand that. Uh, we're using what God gives us. But the rich are laying up uh, all kinds of things, and James uh, deals with it here. The feudal, he's dealing with the feudalness of hoarding riches. How many of you have ever watched that show on TV, Hoarding? Hold up your hand. I can't watch that show. I can't. Makes me makes me crazy. I'm serious. I, 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 can't, I can't do that. How many of you don't know what I'm talking about? Okay, there's a show on television. It's one of these reality shows. And uh, they go to different people who have been hoarders. And when I say hoarders, they're people who never throw away anything. And I've seen times where their house would have trash this, this deep because they refuse to throw away a tin can or a paper cup or whatever. It might be valuable. Now, they're not all like that. We had a fellow in our church in Gastonia that was a hoarder. And I visited in his home. His home was very neat. But it was amazing because when you went in, 
There was nowhere to sit. I think he had one kitchen chair maybe. But his house was filled with things and they were stacked up very neatly. I remember on one stack, all the, all the morning newspapers were stacked up just like they had never been read. Magazines stacked up in the same way. And, uh, and he had, every room of his house was that way, filled with stuff, books and, and magazines and just all kinds of things. That he wouldn't throw anything away. Everything was a treasure. Yeah, he, he went to, I think it was Wendy's, he would go, and he would get a hamburger every day, and it would, at that time, they gave you a styrofoam container. Do you remember those? Well, he would save those, and he would stack them very neatly. It's just the way he was. He was a hoarder. Well, what good did all that stuff do him? All it did was sit there and get in the way, and that's what hoarding is all about. It doesn't serve any real purpose. Well, the wasting of wealth. We need to understand the things that we possess in this world are all temporary. Job said he came into this world naked, he's going out the same way. And we need to understand everything we have is temporary. And the other thing, uh, we need to understand that the things we have are, are, are rotting and and falling apart and, and uh, going through the natural process of, of diminishing. I thought about automobiles. To me, an automobile is transportation. It's something that gets me from here to there. To some people, it's a status symbol. You know, what you're driving says a lot about you, blah, 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 that kind of thing. But listen, doesn't matter what kind of car you drive, sooner or later it's going to be a bucket of bolts. It's going to break down, it's going to rot, it's going to fall apart sooner or later. How about our homes? Homes take a lot of maintenance. Why? Because things break and things get outdated and that kind of thing. You know, every 20 years you got to, you got to revamp because now everything's changed. How about our furniture? Furniture lasts a few years, then the styles change, so we got to go get new furniture. Electronic gadgets. My goodness, you buy something electronic today, and you find out in two weeks they updated it already. Just all kinds of things, boats, appliances, et cetera, et cetera. They all have a limited lifespan. None of them are going to last forever. Now, I hope you understand that a lot of those things that we buy and try to hang on to are built with what we call designed obsolescence. What's that mean? Well, when they manufacture it, they manufacture it only to last so long. For instance, maybe your washing machine or your dishwasher or some of those kind of things. Uh, they only want it to last maybe 10 years, and then you have to buy another one. Listen, with the technology we have, don't you think they could build better things that last longer? Well, why don't they? Because then you wouldn't buy a new one. 
I was thinking about washing machines and dryers. And, uh, you know, back in, in the 70s, they were making some that people still had in, uh, after 2000. They were still using them, and they were still working real well. But then they decided to change everything. And now the big thing's the front loader. Mm, a lot of problems with that baby. But the things that we have, they're going to rot. They're going to wear out. They're going to wear down. Understand that. And then clothes. He says here, uh, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. How do your clothes get moth-eaten? It don't happen when you're wearing them. Hello? Clothes get moth-eaten from not, not being used. And so we're hoarding clothes instead of buying things that we're going to use. And uh, then the moths get to have a good meal. But he's talking here about the abundance of garments, garments that the rich were hoarding. And as I said, being moth-eaten moth -eaten speaks of unused clothing. And I believe this with all my heart. We today have far too many clothes. I think I told you before about a place we visited down in Tennessee. It's called Cades Cove. And it's a place that the TVA bought back in the 1920s to build a dam. They were in the dam building business, and they were going to build a dam in this valley. And so they bought all the homesteads, and there's several churches back in there that they bought. They bought everything back there. The government did. And then they changed their mind. They never built it. So now it's like a park, and you can drive through there, and you can stop and actually go through the old homesteads where people lived. One of the things that struck me as we went through these, I'll call them houses, <laughs> they weren't much more than sheds really, but as we went through, uh, I noticed there were no closets. And I thought, well, where do they put their clothes? And then the light went on. They didn't have 23 sets of clothes. They had two, one for today, and one for when the one I have on today is in the wash. Hmm? We didn't grow up poor, but I got to say, when I was growing up, we didn't have all that many clothes. We had enough, enough to get by. Hmm? But people today have closets and closets and closets full of clothes that they will never wear. Now, it's not wrong to have clothes. I'm glad you all have clothes. I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> it's not sinful to have clothes. And hey, listen, it's not sinful to dress nice. I think Christians ought to dress as best they can, especially when you come to church. You know, dressing properly to come to church is a matter of showing respect to the church and to the Lord. So we are, uh, people ask me, what should I wear to church? You know, sometimes you lead somebody to Christ, and they say, oh, I don't know what I'd wear. Here's what I tell them. Wear the best you have. Make sure it's clean and wear the best you have. That's all we can ask. Clothing. It's not sinful to dress nice, but we need to be careful not to overdo it. 
And understand this, time is the enemy of garments. I was thinking about this. You ever notice how things go out of style? What's that all about? Going out of style is so you'll go buy some new stuff. Get rid of the old stuff. You ever notice how clothes go out of style? Or they wear out. They don't last forever. And you know, let me just stop there for a minute. I, I still cannot understand why people want to wear raggedy-looking jeans. Maybe if you, if you have some idea why, explain it to me. Because when I was a kid, if we put something like that on, my mom would have whooped, whooped me. Where do you think you're going? Now they go buy them that way. It's nuts. I just thought I'd add that. Gold and silver, he says here, are cankered. That means corroded. And I think he's talking about the tarnishing of silver and gold when it's not used. You ever hear about people polishing their silver? That's because they haven't been using it. Silver loses its luster and it has to be polished. Gold and silver, as he's talking here, is symbolic of monetary wealth that's being hoarded. He says they heaped up treasures together for the last days. And what he's saying is, just like that farmer said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build up my barns and I'm going to put all my stuff in my barns and I'm going to take my ease for my last days. Listen, I think it's wise and prudent to plan for, for our future. I, I don't think God's upset when we do that. But we need to do that within reason as well. It's not wrong to prepare for the future, but there's a balance to be struck here between investing in the Lord's work and investing in our future. Somebody said this, if you can't do both investing in God, God's work, uh, if you can't do both, investing in God's work ought to be the priority. Well, why is that? Because God promises to bless those who take care of his work. Amen. Go back to Malachi chapter 3. Somebody said he's the only Italian in the Bible, Malachi. Look at verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with the curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now here, herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, 
saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Listen, God promises to take care of those who are faithful in the tithes and the offerings. And he doesn't give a time limit on it. Hello? I believe if we're faithful in our tithes and offerings, God's going to take care of us. And now, again, I'm, I'm not saying don't, don't prepare for retirement and that kind of thing. I'm not saying that. But we need to understand God's going to take care of us. Believers are going to give an account of how they use their finances for the Lord. I said earlier, God doesn't bless us so we can build a big bank account. We're expected to invest that which he blesses us with in his work. I got to thinking about this. You may agree with me or not, but I got to thinking about this idea that it's a shame for believers to be hoarding money while missionaries and churches are struggling financially. I think that's a shame. I got to thinking about these televangelists who live in, in uh, one in particular. I don't want to mention any names. His initials are Joel. Um, $5 million home. And he owns more than one. And all the trappings. That, and there are several other televangelists and, and folks who are in the same boat where they're getting very wealthy off the ministry. Now think about this. Just take the house alone. How, how, many, how many churches could be established with $5 million? How many missionaries could be sent with $5 million? There's a world dying and going to hell. And why does anybody need a $5 million house? What do you do at home? You eat and sleep, right? Why do you need a $5 million house to do that? But see, it's the same idea that James is talking about here. And uh, people wanting to amass wealth and have wealth. But there is a time when we're going to give an account. And I believe we're responsible to use our finances in a proper way as the Lord directs us. Well, we see an impending doom. We see a wasted wealth there in verses 2 and 3. And then verse 4, we see a defrauding of laborers. He says, Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sebaoth. So these rich were holding back the wages of people that had worked for them. Laborers were hired in their day. And when they were hired, they were paid by the day. They didn't make legal contracts. They just had verbal agreements. And uh, these rich men would hire laborers and promise to pay them a specific amount. But then when it, it came to the end of the day and it's time to pay them, they wouldn't pay. It's interesting, and I'm not trying to razzle-dazzle you with my knowledge of Greek, but the tense of what he says they're kept back, that doesn't mean just one time. It's an ongoing action. It happens, and it continues to happen. So this wasn't something they did one time. He's saying this is the, 
the thing you continually were doing. In other words, they got wealthy by somebody else's labor. And they were actually breaking the law. Go back to Deuteronomy. Now, he's talking to Jews who were supposed to know the law. And in Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15. Here's the law God gave him about this. Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren or of thy strangers that are in thy land within thy gates. He says, now this applies to your brethren, to fellow Jews, or anybody that you hire. Verse 15. At his day... Thou shalt give him his hire. Neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor and setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto the Lord, and it be sin unto thee. They're violating the very law of God that was given to them by withholding wages. All right, go over Leviticus chapter 19. And verse 13, he says, Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. So those are, that's the law of God. You're supposed to pay the fellow when the day's work is done, and they're violating the very law. Jeremiah 22, 13 speaks about it as well. We're not going to go there. So here are these rich Jews who are getting rich by taking advantage of other people's labors. And their failure to pay was a result of their greed, not inability to pay. Listen, their crops were reaped, and they were going to gain the profits from them. They had the money to pay. They just refused to do what was right. They were, somebody said they were parasitic, their wealth was gained at the expense of others. They refused to pay the just compensation. You know, they were violating the law, and of course, thou shalt not steal is still a part of the law. And they were stealing. And that law is a law that God will enforce. Now, we bring that up to our day and age, and we need to understand, we as Christians need to be faithful to pay our bills as well. Hmm? When we contract with somebody to pay a certain amount, we're supposed to pay it. Anything less is stealing. Now, I'm going to meddle here for a minute. I'm going to give you Gilmore's free opinion. I believe that this running up large amounts of credit debt indebtedness and then declaring bankruptcy, to me, is stealing. When you take that credit card, you've made an agreement that you're going to pay what you put on that credit card. That's the agreement you made. And if you run up a bunch of debt and then don't pay what you ran up on that credit card, you're stealing. Now, let me say very quickly, there are different ways of bankruptcy. There's a bankruptcy where you, they help you to pay your bills. I don't have a problem with that. I have a very 
big problem with this one that wipes out your debt, and uh, you're now debt-free to go start and do it all over again. Mm -mm -mm. Got quiet in here all of a sudden. Listen, if, if you make an agreement to pay and you don't pay, you're stealing. It's that simple. We need to be pay, faithful to pay our bills, and we need to pay them on time. Hmm? Now, I understand sometimes you get in a bind and maybe you can't make a payment here or a payment there. Uh, you, you, you're responsible to contact the one that you owe to and let them know. Hmm? Don't just avoid them. Let them know what's going on and what you're going to do. When we make an agreement to pay, we have given our word. Failure to keep our agreement makes us thieves and liars. Hmm. An impending doom, a wasting of wealth, a defrauding of laborers, and then a description of intemperance, verse 5. He says, ye lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. They were self-indulgent. He says they lived in pleasure, and that has to do with luxury or a high, high lifestyle. They lived in pleasure. They had the best. They enjoyed the best food and drink and all the other pleasures of life. And then he comes right behind that and says you were wanton. Well, that has to do with sensual pleasures. And I think he's alluding to illicit sex, something they were participating in. So they were self-indulgent. I read somewhere about, <clears throat> I think it was in Nero's court. Uh, somebody was taking a tour, and they went into this place that was uh, supposed to be Nero's court where he had some of his gatherings. And uh, in the middle, there was a, looked like a well, a stone well. And uh, the person went over, and there was no water. It just ground in there. And when he asked, well, what's the purpose of this? It was a place for when they were having these banquets and uh, had gorged themselves to where they couldn't eat anymore. They would go and regurgitate into that well and go back and eat some more. That's the kind of thing they did. That's the kind of luxury they lived in. And they were not only self-indulgent, they were insensitive. It says they nourished their hearts. Their self-indulgence and wantonness rendered them insensitive to spiritual truth. It talks about the day of slaughter that's coming. They were oblivious that they were being fattened for the kill. What do you mean by that? Well, think about this. Here's one of Satan's favorite techniques. Fatten a person's pocketbook and fill their lives with earthly, carnal pleasures, making them unaware of spiritual realities and the dangers ahead. He loves to do that. How many Christians does he get off track giving them things? That next job promotion where you're making more money and you can buy a bigger house. Or maybe that boat that you can go on weekends and spend the weekend on the lake instead of going to church. Hmm? And on and on we could go with things he uses very effectively. 
and subtly to get people away from the Lord and serving the Lord. And let me add that there's a lot of believers who have fallen into his trap. Earthly pleasures and wantonness have dulled their spiritual senses and they will one day face Christ as their judge. And then he talks about the final judgment there. He says, ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. I believe he's speaking there about the corruption of rich people. They had corrupted the courts. Ye condemned and killed. These needed to justify their wicked deeds, so they used kangaroo courts. They sought relief from their own guilt by involving others. You see, the wealthy could afford to buy the courts and thereby get whatever, their decision, whatever decisions they desired. Don't we feel that way today? Money talks. You know, right now we're having great controversy in our government. A lot of it has to do with what went on in the last election and uh, how some very wealthy people were trying to rig the election. But it seems like those who are guilty are getting off scot-free. Their money talks. Hmm? And as much as we love America and thank God for our judicial system, in many, many ways and times it's corrupt. Money buys decisions. Hmm. The wealthy could afford to buy the courts and get whatever decisions they desired, but the poor could not get any true justice. But they found themselves at the mercy of the rich. Somebody said this. We can think of the rich as using the process of law, processes of law, to get their own way and to feather their own nest at the expense of the poor. Let me wrap this up. A fellow named Barnes wrote this. He said, there is no sin in merely being rich. Where sin exists among the rich, it arises from the manner in which wealth is acquired, the spirit which it tends to gender in the heart, and the way in which it is used. I think that's so true. I'm going to say it again so you get it. There's no sin in merely being rich. Where sin exists among the rich, it arises from the manner in which wealth is acquired, the spirit which it tends to gender in the heart, and the way in which it's used. Worldly wealth is an area of high risk in the battle to walk humbly with God. It's hard to be rich and lowly at the same time. Wow. I'll say that again. It's hard to be rich and lowly at the same time. The use of money and the life of self-pleasing are never very far apart. Listen, friend, it's not wrong. Nowhere in the Bible does it say it's wrong to be rich. What's wrong is how we use the riches. And we need to be very careful about that.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for James and the warning he sounds here about the temptations of riches. And Lord, help us to be a people who aren't hoarders and who aren't trying to build great, amass great fortunes, but a people who will be satisfied with enough and will invest in your work and your will like you want us to. We understand that you want us to be transfer points for finances, that it'll come flow through us to your work and your will. We know that you expect your people to finance your work. Help us to be faithful in that. Speak to hearts here now in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.